Hello, my name is Donna Newman and I'm a partner in the Finance Litigation Group at Stevenson Harwood. Welcome to the fourth in our Autumn 2022 series of four short podcasts in which we take a bite-sized look at some key topics that have emerged from court or regulatory decisions over the last year. In this episode, Alina Neal of Counsel in the Finance Litigation Group and Archie Campbell, partner in the Real Estate Finance Team, look at the increasing regulatory reporting burden placed on financial institutions to comply with ESG obligations and the corresponding risk of ESG-related litigation. Hi, I'm Alina Neal of Council in the Finance Litigation Team. And I'm Archie Campbell, partner in the Finance Team and member of the firm's ESG group. In this podcast, we'll look at the development of ESG as a driving force in investment and the rising litigation risk for financial institutions. In particular, we're going to consider the increasing importance of ESG factors for investors and the response of financial institutions, the current ESG reporting requirements in the UK and the growing risk of ESG-related litigation and the steps that can be taken to minimise that risk. So looking first at the importance of ESG factors for investors, um, ESG assets are expected to account for about a third of the projected total assets under management globally by 2025. And in fact, it's suggested that in the next five years, most loans will going to have a green or sustainability-linked aspect to them. So what is a green or sustainability-linked loan? Well, for, for detailed analysis, you can read our separate finance update, links of which are available in the, in the notes. But in summary, a green loan is defined by the Loan Market Association, the LMA, as being any type of loan instrument made available exclusively to finance or refinance, in whole or in part, new and or existing eligible green projects. Defining green projects depends on the sector, but the LMA has also provided a framework in its green loan principles the GLPs, which in short is based on the following four elements. Firstly, the use of proceeds, so it needs to be used for a designated green project. Secondly, a process for evaluation or selection, so in particular looking at the eligibility criteria and success. Thirdly, the management of proceeds, for example, the tracking of allocation of the funds toward green projects. And finally, reporting, so keeping up to date information on projects uh, and the use of the proceeds, etc. And what about sustainability-linked loans? Well, again, the LMA have given a helpful definition of a sustainability-linked loan. They define it as being any type of loan instrument and or contingent facility, for example, a letter of credit, that incentivise the borrower's achievement of ambitious, predetermined sustainability performance objectives. So sustainability performance is measured using sustainability performance targets, SPTs, Again, the definitions can be sector-specific, but based on the following four factors. Firstly, relationship with the borrower's overall sustainability strategy. Secondly, target setting, so measuring the sustainability of the borrower. Thirdly, reporting, so keeping up-to-date information. And fourthly, review, so an external, independent review of performance. They sound very similar to me. Are there any key differences? They are similar, yes, but the major difference is that green loans must be used for green projects, so the funds are used for that particular project, whereas sustainability-linked loan principles incentivise the borrower to improve their sustainability overall, and that's done through alignment with the terms of the loan. In a sustainability-linked loan, the use of the proceeds is not a key determining factor, whereas it is in a green loan. 
So that's the theory, but can you give us any examples of how this works in practice? Yeah, there are a couple of recent examples that Steams and Harwood team have worked on, actually. So the first one is a sustainability link loan, and that's where we advise HSBC on its first shipping, sustainability and transition-linked financing for STEM shipping in respect to a five-year, 13.6 million US dollar facility. HSBC was the sustainability lender in the transaction and supported the ship-owning company to progress its ESG goals by establishing a key performance indicator that aligns with the sector's wider sustainability and regulatory targets in relation to the reduction of CO2 emissions. Another recent example we've worked on in the real estate finance sector um, was advising a UK lender on a £25 million loan to a residential home developer with the loan providing for different interest rates depending on compliance with the LMA's green loan principles. Thanks, Archie. So in addition to the LMA's guiding principles that help define whether a loan is green or sustainability linked, I'm now going to look at the mandatory reporting requirements in relation to ESG issues that have been and are being introduced in the UK. Mandatory ESG reporting in the UK is a bit of a minefield and full of acronyms. The aim of this podcast is to highlight the overall ESG environment before looking at the likely litigation risk. So with that in mind, I'm going to provide a high-level summary of the three main sources of reporting requirements, starting with the Companies Act obligations, and then looking at the reporting requirements for the biggest financial institutions. For non-listed companies, the key basis for ESG reporting is the Companies Act 2006. While companies have always had to disclose non-financial information, In April 2022, two further statutory instruments came into force, increasing climate-related reporting requirements for companies and LLPs in line with the recommendations of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, known as the TCFD. These apply to eligible entities for their accounting periods starting on or after 6th of April 2022. In brief, the regulations require the provision of a sustainability information statement on climate-related disclosures in their annual strategic report. The full list of disclosures is available in the notes to the podcast, but in short, this means describing key governance arrangements and processes for assessing and managing climate-related risks and opportunities. In addition, Section 172 of the Companies Act imposes a general duty on every company director to act in the way they consider, in good faith, would be most likely to promote the success of the company for the benefits of its shareholders as a whole. This also requires directors to have regard to various factors, including the community and the environment, in making their decisions and setting policies and strategy. So moving up a level, for premium and standard listed companies, TCFD reporting is already mandatory on what is termed a comply or explain basis under recent changes made by the FCA to the listing rules. The TCFD's recommendations and recommended disclosures are very similar to the new provisions in the Companies Act. In brief, they also focus on disclosing governance around climate-related risks and opportunities. Specifically, they also mandate publication of the metrics used to assess climate risks, including disclosing scope 1, 2 and 3 greenhouse gas emissions and the related risks. And finally, for asset managers, policy statement PS21-24 on enhancing climate-related disclosures by asset managers and asset owners introduces mandatory climate-related disclosure requirements through a new ESG sourcebook in the FCA handbook. This applies to asset managers, life insurers and FCA-regulated pension providers. For asset managers with more than £50 billion, 
the rules have been enforced since 1st of January 2022. For asset managers with more than £5 billion, the rules will come into force on 1st of January 2023. The really key reporting requirements here are product level reporting, a core set of disclosures, which includes scope one, two and three greenhouse gas emissions and total carbon emissions in relation to the firm's products and portfolios, which must be made publicly available in a prominent place on the main website of the firm and entity level reporting, which is an annual TCFD entity report setting out how the firm takes climate related matters into account in managing or administering investments, which must be signed by a member of senior management. That does sound like quite a lot of reporting. What do you think poses the greatest concern for financial institutions? I think one of the biggest challenges is the scope three emissions reporting. Yeah, I would agree. Um, Can you just explain what is meant by the different scope emissions? Yeah, sure. So scope one is direct emissions from companies, for example, the boiler or servers in a building. And scope two is indirect emissions from the purchase of electricity, etc., Banks typically produce low scope one and two emissions, but their exposure in relation to scope three emissions, which is indirect impact from other activity, for example, in the supply chain, can be high because of the greenhouse gas emissions by clients for whom they provide finance. Of course, the key way in which financial institutions can control their exposure to scope three emissions is by ensuring they commit to green and sustainable financing measures, as we discussed earlier. So, In light of the reporting matrix that we've outlined, I'm going to look at the key risk areas associated with the increasing focus on ESG. There are four key areas where we've seen or foresee ESG issues and risks arising and leading to litigation or regulatory investigations. The first are claims arising from reporting and disclosure obligations, such as the risk of shareholder actions under sections 90 and or 90A of the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000. This gives investors the right to sue public companies that publish misleading statements within or omissions from prospectuses or listing particulars or untrue or misleading statements within or omissions from other information published by the company or as a result of a dishonest delay by the company in publishing such information. To date, there's no reported case of an ESG-related claim under the Financial Services and Markets Act, but the potential for Section 90A claims in the ESG sphere and the possible personal liability for directors or persons discharging managerial responsibility should not be underestimated. Directors' duties, in particular Section 172 of the Companies Act 2006 and the concept of enlightened shareholder value, are another key target for shareholder activism. For example, Client Earth has notified the Board of Shell that it intends to pursue legal action against the Board for allegedly breaching its duties under Sections 172 and 174 of the Companies Act by failing to promote the success of the company and to exercise reasonable skill, care and diligence in relation to its energy strategy. Next, parent companies may also have potential liability for the actions or inactions of their overseas subsidiaries for ESG-related issues. More information in relation to the recent Supreme Court judgments in Vedanta and Okpabi, in which the Supreme Court confirmed that UK parent companies may be liable for the overseas operations of their non-UK subsidiaries, is available in the notes to this podcast. Lastly, a key area of concern for financial institutions is their potential exposure for mis-selling or greenwashing claims. In addition to liability under FISMA, Shareholders in private companies can potentially bring claims under the Misrepresentation Act 1967 and in the torts of negligent misstatement or deceit. 
While again there's currently no reported case of such an ESG-related claim, the scope is significant. Although the LMA definitions we discussed earlier contain an element of flexibility in relation to the definitions of green and sustainability-linked loans, financial services institutions must expect to face increasing challenges and scrutiny in relation to their green or sustainable finance credentials. Earlier this month, for example, the Advertising Standards Agency, the ASA, determined that a bank's adverts were misleading because whilst highlighting the bank's climate change initiatives, they omitted to mention the bank's substantial contribution to rising emissions. Overall, the ASA concluded that the advertising left consumers with the impression that the bank's overall contribution to the environment was a positive one. While the ASA's finding is one which goes to reputation rather than significant financial risk, if such a misleading statement is found to have caused loss to shareholders, plainly redress is likely to be sought through the courts. So in conclusion, what can organisations be doing now to mitigate the risks of ESG-related litigation? In terms of litigation risk, one of the key steps that organisations and directors can take now is to ensure that they approach their reporting and disclosure obligations with as much transparency as possible. ESG reporting obligations are significant and implementing and monitoring compliance with policies is challenging. It's particularly difficult because in the UK we don't yet have an agreed green taxonomy, so there's no universally accepted metric by which compliance with green obligations or aspirations can be measured. In these circumstances, and pending an agreed framework, financial institutions need to balance the desire to promote their green and sustainable credentials with the investment required in credible certification to support all ESG claims. Thank you for listening, and please do look at the notes attached to this podcast, and please do get in touch if you'd like to discuss anything with us further.